0: The scripture reading for our sermon passage this morning comes from Luke 2, verse 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. as As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: Amen. All right. well if you're visiting us for the first time, you know, welcome to our church. And if you want to get connected to our church, one of the best ways to do that is to uh, fill out the connection sheet um, on the last page of your handout. Just tear it off. Uh, turn it into the welcome table in the front, and they'll reach out to you. Um, that's really the best way to connect, get connected to our church and the community and the people, whether it's you know, a community group or the men's or women's ministry. Um, so if you've got some time, if you want to do that, please feel free and go ahead. Uh, right now, we're going through the sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. You know, we're still in the beginning stages of Jesus' life. Um, I know that many of us, we, we know so much about Jesus' adult life. We don't know much about his early life. And so it's going to be good to hear about his infant days. And then next Sunday, we're going to talk about him as a teenager. It's going to be good. Um, and so today, we're going to take a look at two things in our passage that Harry just wrote. We're going to take a look at, one, the significance of the firstborn, and then, two, the gospel sword. Those are our two points, the significance of the firstborn po- and the gospel sword. So first, the significance of the firstborn. You know, in verse 22, the text says that according to the law of Moses, Jesus' parents brought him to the Jerusalem temple to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And this law that, uh, that Luke is quoting is originally given in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 13, God tells Israel to consecrate to him all the firstborn whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel. But, but what does that mean? What does it mean to consecrate to God the firstborn? It's kind of an archaic word, consecrate. Well, consecrate just means to dedicate. And you see, the original listeners, they weren't removed from their culture as we are, so they all understood what Luke was saying when he wrote this. But for you and me, we got to do a little bit of work. And so to understand this, we have to understand the significance of the firstborn. What is the significance of the firstborn in ancient times? You know, last week I shared a little bit how in uh, ancient times it was a tribal culture. Without the technology we have today, there wasn't much traveling or outward movement. So children typically stayed within the family their entire lives. And they continued the family's tribal legacy, um, security, and power. This was how you protected yourself back then. This was how you survived back then as a family. And the firstborn got all the marbles. They virtually got the entire inheritance, okay? So if you weren't the firstborn, you were out of luck. And here's why. A family had a certain amount, amount of land and a certain amount of wealth. And it was impossible to divide it into three or four kids, and you know, in some cases, 12 kids. If you did that, the family would immediately lose its amassed wealth, its amassed power, and its amassed influence in the community. So the firstborn got everything. And it was their responsibility to take care of the family. Or even if they wanted to, they could cut out people. In the family. And so, in ancient times, all ancient cultures looked to the firstborn as the ultimate hope, as the ultimate provider, as the ultimate leader and protector of the family. That's how it was. This is why, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh issued an order to have all Hebrew sons killed. It was his way of maintaining power and authority and when God decided to rescue the Israelites he crafted a just and merciful proposition to Pharaoh he said if you free the Hebrews I'll forgive you all will be forgiven but if you don't there will be justice just as the Hebrew firstborns were taken from them your firstborns will be taken from you And so you see, in this statement, God is basically saying to Pharaoh, you think you are the one who has ultimate authority and control and power in life, but you don't. I do. That's what God was saying to Pharaoh. And then after the Exodus, God gives Israel this command to remind them of this. God tells them to offer to him the firstborn, But he adds a stipulation here. He says, and redeemed the firstborn for a price. You see, this was to symbolize two things. First, Israel was to be countercultural, set apart from the rest of the world, and how they were to look at their firstborn. That the firstborn was ultimately God's. And they were to be consecrated first and foremost for his worship and glory. And in this way, spiritually lead the family. In this way, spiritually protect and take care of the family. That was supposed to be the purpose of the firstborn. And on a high level in scripture, God actually calls Israel his firstborn, right? It's because his people were to be set apart, consecrated as the cosmic firstborn of the world, as a spiritual blessing, as a spiritual salt and light to the world. There were to be a wellspring in the world of God's ultimate love and life and hope and rest and joy to be found in his presence and wisdom. But as I mentioned, the the command wasn't just to do this. It was also to redeem the firstborn for a price. Now, once again, that was very understandable to people like Joseph and Mary. But you and me were chronologically removed from their time, and so we got to do a little bit of work. You see, to redeem the firstborn for a price means that the firstborn was going to have tremendous, tremendous brokenness still, that their sins would need to be acknowledged and forgiven. It means that there was grace for the firstborn. I think that when we look at leaders or Maybe even the firstborn, even though we're, we're not in ancient times, we, we expect them to be flawless. And we judge them very harshly sometimes when they fail. But God has instituted here, yes, even the leader, the spiritual leader, will need grace. And this was symbolically shown in the redemption price of five shekels. But in our text, it says two pigeons, for, because Joseph and Mary, Jesus' family, was extremely poor. So in the law of Moses, the typical offering was, or the typical redemption price was five shekels, but if you were from a poor family, God accepted two pigeons. But it was symbolic. It was symbolic of forgiveness, right? Because forgiveness always comes at a cost. Uh, To show grace always comes at a cost. Whether it's emotional or a financial cost for example if you're unwilling to forgive someone who has broken something in your house they will literally pay the financial price right? if you don't want to pay the price they're gonna pay the price they may pay more than a financial price though they may pay an emotional price they may be exiled from your home <laughs> right? they may never be invited again but if we choose to forgive that person then we'll pay the price We will pay the financial price and we will pay the emotional price. They will not be exiled. There's no emotional grudge. You see, forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness always has a cost. Someone always pays the price for forgiveness. And that's what that redemption price, those two pigeons, symbolized. But it was symbolic in the sense that five shekels or two pigeons can never forgive all of someone's sins, right? It was a symbol of an ultimate forgiveness, a signpost to the ultimate price for our eternal and spiritual redemption. And so what we have here in the uh, law of God for the firstborn is God is laying down a symbolic structure, a structure that is counter-cultural to the ways that the ancient world was thinking at that time, right? The firstborn was not to be this humble and gracious and compassionate spiritual leader. He's supposed to be a physical army warrior to conquer tribes. That was the understanding of the ancient times of the firstborn. And forgiveness was never a concept. Vengeance was the concept. And so God is laying down this symbolic structure to go against the cultural perceived foundations of that time. That as the firstborn is consecrated to God by the parents, it was an act of worship, a declaration and trust that the spiritual wisdom and will of God and this principle of forgiveness would be their ultimate foundation. Now for us today, you know, we don't live in an ancient, uh, hierarchical society. So we may have different cultural foundations that God may be pushing against. You see, principally, a foundation is something you build everything on. Right? Before they build that building behind us, they put down a foundation, a concrete slab. That's literally what foundation means. So the Bible always is getting at this principle of Foundations in our life. Whatever they may be. Which we build everything in our life on. That we rest upon. That when shaken, we're shaken. Everything seems to feel like it's crumbling down. Uh, Counselor David Polison said, A good way to identify your foundation or foundations, because we could have multiple, is to ask yourself diagnostic questions. For example, he writes, if you couldn't attain something in your life, would you experience sorrow or despair? There is a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is a pain for which there are sources of consolation. Despair is a pain for which there are no sources of consolation. In other words, sorrow comes from losing a good thing so that if you experience financial trouble in your life, you find comfort in your family or in your spiritual community to get through it. You can be consoled. But despair is inconsolable because it comes from losing not a good thing, but an ultimate thing, which means there are no alternative sources to turn to so that when you lose it, You are inconsolable. It breaks your spirit. It has become a foundational thing because you have built your entire life on it. So Risen, you know, I want to get practical with us. What are one or two things that are foundational for you? In other words, what has the power to make you inconsolable? What, what are some things that you feel or think come to mind? For example, is it affirmation from others? Does feedback make you inconsolable? Does it rattle your foundation of self-competency and pride? Instead of maybe a humble listening heart to grow and to love others, do you get on the defensive? Do you turn it around on the other person? Can you not only give it, but can you also receive it? Or is, found, or is your foundation success, right? Failure, big or small, does that make you inconsolable? Do you expect perfection out of yourself? Because we will all fail in life. We we will. We will all fail tremendously in life. But how does the failure affect you? When you fail, do you relentlessly blame shift? Do you take it out on others? Does the disappointment, uh, the unmet expectation, the regret color so much of your week, so much of your year, so much of this season, so much of your life? Is it hard to be grateful in the midst of failure? I mean, I struggle with these things. Uh, And if you're human, I think you'll struggle with them too. I know every marriage struggles with it. (laughs) And every family does. So, Risen, it's important to understand what our life foundations are because, in one way or another, we are going to experience the brokenness of that foundation. In due time, the brokenness of this life is going to reveal the cracks of that foundation. Life is going to wake you up, it's going to reveal the brokenness of your own moral ability, it's going to reveal the weakness. Of your own leadership so it's gonna strip away our looks our health it's gonna take away our security any foundation here in this world friends it's gonna take you away you and me and so the point that the Bible is making from the ancient times to today is that this world gives you no real foundations Whether it's the hope of the firstborn back then, or today, the hope of our competency, or our ego, our pride, or autonomy, our wealth, or our health, this world gives us no real foundations. They're fragile, they can be easily shaken. Because sin is real. The fall is real. And friends, it, it's gotten into everything. There's no plan, there's no book, there's no amount of preparation that can counteract that. So God was always putting his people to the test which foundation are you building your life upon? And one of the ways God tested them was by saying in scripture over and over and over again, offer up the firstborn to me. He never changed his message. He was at least consistent. (laughs) Therefore, the firstborn cattle are always sacrificed to God. The first harvest of grain are always given to God. The firstborn child is offered in consecrated God. This symbolized a new cultural dynamic for the people of God, that their ultimate foundation wasn't to be what the world had determined it would be for them. They would trust God, and what he said is their ultimate foundation. But not every Israelite did this, but Mary and Joseph did. That's why Luke is recording this. Here's the irony, though their child would actually be the ultimate foundation in life. (laughs) Just not in the way that they expected. And this brings us to the second point, the sword of the gospel. When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus as an offering to the temple, the Spirit of God falls on this person named Simeon. And Simeon takes Jesus into his arms and he pronounces a blessing. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And then he continues to say, Behold, this child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, the salvation and light of the gospel comes as a spiritual sword that cuts through our hearts. See, the light and salvation that God brings, it goes through your heart. because that's where the battle is fought. Salvation is not fought at the intellectual level, but at the heart level. Not ultimately with the dialogue of what we know, what's best, or what makes most sense. But at the end of the day, spiritual life is fought with what our hearts desire what our hearts value what our hearts long after for example jesus challenges the gods of romance and pleasure wealth and comfort politics nationalism ethnocentrism and family jesus challenges the gods of independence and autonomy self-authority, ego, and pride. These are some of the untouchable gods and foundations in the world, in our culture, and in our hearts. So the gospel sword needs to come into our heart and break those chains. Author Tim Keller writes this about our text. Simeon is getting at this fundamental nature in which all human beings have a motor of self-autonomy and self-defensiveness deep in our hearts. We need to believe we are competent to run our own lives, that we are fully self-sufficient, that we've got all the answers, that we are all wise. As a result, we feel the need to self-justify ourselves, our words and our actions and anything that goes against this motor from functioning, even it's, if it's for our own good, makes us very angry. And nothing he writes, nothing is a bigger problem to this whole system than Jesus. <laughs> Because everything about Jesus says to us, you are not all competent. You are not morally perfect. You are not autonomous. You are not self sufficient. And he says, you are not your own. Because I have bought you at a price. You are mine. You have been redeemed. Tim Keller ends this quote, but our fundamental nature doesn't want to hear that. (laughs) In Romans chapter 6 to 8, Paul talks about this inner conflict, this inner warfare. He calls it a warfare between the old sinful nature and the new christian nature the old self wants you to continue to be your own master to feed that ego to feed that autonomy to feed that self competency to feed that self justification but the new self the new self it's it's tasted the gospel it knows the freedom and the joy and the wisdom and the life and peace of trusting god to be god and when these two wills cross There will always be a fight. So, friends, true Christianity is always a fight. And the gospel sword is like antiseptic. You know, you pour uh, antiseptic onto a wound and it stings when you want to pour antiseptic onto the wounds of children, they don't want you to do it because it stings so much, but you know you've got to do it or else an infection will occur. It stings, but it heals. And this is how the gospel works. It creates an inner stinging turmoil in our hearts because we've got to admit things we don't want to admit we have to acknowledge weaknesses that we don't want to acknowledge we have to acknowledge brokenness that we don't want to acknowledge it undermines our pride and our ego which is a terrible burden for us to bear anyways as well for those around us but there's no way to get to the healing peace and joy of the gospel without going through that inner turmoil without getting the antiseptic sting. Friends, the gospel sword has to pass through our hearts. This is the only way the light can bring us out of the darkness. It has to happen at the heart level. This is the only way to the love and the grace and the freedom of Christ. And this is not just how salvation comes. This is also how sanctification and discipleship comes. This is what we, it means when we say the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Zs of the Christian life. Because the Christian life is a continual fight. It's a spiritual fight for your soul fight in your heart because, friends, that's, that's where the battle needs to be fought. That's where the battle is ultimately won. If God could win your heart, then we can expe- experience a victory in our lives. But how do we get the resolve to face this sword at the heart level, the sword of the gospel? How do we have the courage to be exposed, not only to ourselves, but maybe in some of our, at least our closest relationships. Well, it's only by seeing how Jesus had the resolve to face the ultimate sword for us. You know, Genesis 3 describes how when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God put a flaming sword in place to guard the way to the tree of eternal life. It was another way of saying the consequences of sin is death. Because if you and I were to live forever as sinners, that would not be a good thing. And the entire Old Testament bears witness to this because every time sin is dealt with in the temple, a substitute animal goes under the sword and dies. What was Jesus doing then when he went to the cross? Friends, when Jesus went to the cross he was paying the ultimate consequence for sin. When Jesus went to the cross he was going under the ultimate sword of sin for us. It came down on him. So that it doesn't have to come down on us. In other words, Jesus is the true firstborn who is our real foundation. His life was consecrated and committed to the will and glory and worship of God. And He is the one who brings the ultimate redemption, the ultimate forgiveness between us and God and that power and grace that we can experience in our lives and in our marriages and in our families and with our our children and with our siblings and in a war-torn world. And what Luke is saying is that this is the certain foundation to build everything on. This is the foundation that can never be shaken, that can never be cracked. And when we think about this, friends, when we think about how the ultimate sword fell upon Christ for us, the Spirit of Christ comes into our hearts. And the sword of the gospel cuts through our hearts with the conviction of our own sin It reveals, as Simeon says, the state of our souls to us, which we were blind to, but now see in the light of the gospel sword. And we remember that we are fighting the good fight. We are fighting the ultimate fight. And as we remember that that the ultimate sword passed through Jesus and the battle that he fought was infinitely greater than anything he asked us to fight. It will encourage us. Because when we go through every one of these inner conflicts with God and we finally say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever it is, maybe that foundation is the anxiety of financial security, maybe it's the, maybe that foundation is uh, pride. Maybe that foundation is uh, you know the anxiety of maybe maybe never having children or maybe, maybe the anxiety of getting married, when we go through any one of those inner conflicts and we say, "God, not not my will, but your will." When we do that we'll experience spiritual victory. We'll go deeper into Christ's joy, deeper into his love, deeper into his security, deeper into his rest, and deeper into the ultimate and only lasting foundation. So friends, remember this, that Christ is not done Fighting for you yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Your word is like a spiritual diamond that from afar looks like any normal rock, but put under the microscope of an experienced jeweler. Father, we see the crystal clarity beauty of this gospel diamond but father we we ask that you would help us not to see with our eyes or see with our minds but that you would help us to see with our hearts how this gospel excels in wisdom and beauty and love and rest and joy and peace over and above against all the other foundations in this world Father, it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of this, for us to get distracted. But we are so thankful that when we come to your word, when we faithfully commit ourselves to studying your word, your word goes forth and it does not come back empty. Because your spirit is tied to your word and your spirit pierces like a gospel sword through our hearts and reveals our hearts and heals us like antiseptic, with your great love your great forgiveness your great truth your great wisdom your great redemption so Father I pray I, I don't know what everyone is personally going through but you do and you are the great counselor that can apply individually customized to every single one of us so Father I ask that you would do that that you would engage us into a good fight ultimate fight a spiritual fight where Christ can win us over and we will experience victory not only in our hearts but in our lives pray that you would also remember that we will never experience fully here on earth but only fully and perfectly and sinlessly in the eternal Sabbath rest so Father take us there drag us there if you have to We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.